Hello, you're listening to the June 2021 episode of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. And as usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh. If you were listening last month, you'll know I was quite excited about the prospect of getting one of those little COVID vaccine stickers. Well, I can report now that I did indeed get a sticker, but then I remembered very quickly that having stickers on your clothes is actually pretty annoying. Today, Kate, Charlesley, and Gareth Doyle will be popping in for a bit of an investment update, looking at all the things trustees have on their plates at the moment, including ESG and implementation statements. But first, news, news, and more news. The Pensions Regulator has published its annual funding statement for occupational DB schemes. This is aimed at schemes with valuation dates between the 22nd of September 2020 and the 21st of September 2021, all those undergoing significant changes during this period. But it will be of interest to all DB schemes as it gives us an idea of TPR's current thinking. There are some comments on the difficulty of setting inflation assumptions due to the impact of RPI reform, including the need for consistency between the inflation assumption and the inflation exposure in a scheme's investment strategy. TPR have also noted that the long-term impact of COVID-19 will take some time to become apparent and said any trustees who place material weight on 2020 data when setting their assumption for future mortality improvements will be expected to justify this approach. COVID-19 also still looms large in TPR's comments on employer covenant, with TPR outlining three broad categories. There are some businesses where COVID has had a limited impact and for these TPR's view is that it should be business as usual, so generally no reductions in deficit repair contributions or extensions to recovery plans. There will then be some companies where the initial impact of COVID-19 was material, but recovery has been strong with medium-term prospects unaffected. In these cases, trustees should carefully consider requests for lower contributions, but TPR's expectation is that these would only be short-term, with more paid later on to make up for this. The final category is those who have suffered from a continued material impact and may never fully recover. Here, TPR expects a bigger emphasis on stress testing and scenario planning, with trustees seeking mitigation for any long-term reduction in contributions. There are also the usual reminders that schemes should be focusing on integrated risk management, contingency planning and long-term funding targets, although the new funding code that formalises some of these requirements won't be coming into force until late 2022 at the earliest. TPR has also published its new corporate plan. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't we just have one of those a couple of months ago? Well, sort of. I mean, that was TPR's long-term strategy looking out over the next 15 years. But this one's more focused on what they're actually going to do over the next three years to deliver on these longer-term priorities. Over the first year, TPR plans to extend their reach via the new powers in the Pension Schemes Act 2021, although they recognise that this may bring with it some difficult decisions on what to prioritise. They'll also focus on establishing the new framework for pensions dashboards, developing a broader understanding of value for money and good decision making for DC schemes, and delivering a more joined up approach to tackle pension scams. In years two and three, TPR plans an increased focus on cybersecurity, further development of dashboards, and continued engagement with the industry and government around DB super funds and collective DC schemes. The plan also tells us how TPR's work will be measured, and there are 15 key performance indicators for the first year alone. The DWP has launched another consultation on simpler annual benefit statements for members of DC schemes. This time they're consulting on a set of draft regulations and associated statutory guidance. Together, these would introduce new requirements for the length and format of annual statements, with an illustrative template included as part of the draft guidance. The new statement should enable members to see how much money they have in their pot, how much has been saved in the last year, a projection of how much money they could have when they retire, 
and what they could do to give themselves more money at retirement. The intention is that the whole thing should fit onto no more than two sides of A4, although I didn't look in enough detail to see if they were proposing a minimum font size. The consultation also says that this isn't designed to stop trustees or managers providing supplementary information if they believe this would be helpful, but it would need to be in a separate document with the statement itself front and centre in any information pack. The proposed changes are set to come into force from the 6th of April 2022, and this consultation runs until the 29th of June. The Pensions Dashboard Programme has issued a call for input, which offers schemes an opportunity to influence the order and timing of the compulsory stage connection to the Pensions Dashboard. The PDP has recommended that staging should be split into three waves, with the first wave starting in April 2023 and running for up to two years. This first wave would include all schemes with a thousand or more members, and this wave would itself be split into three cohorts, so Master Trusts and FCA-regulated personal pension providers would be first up, followed by DC schemes used for auto-enrolment, and then all other occupational pension schemes after that. These other occupational schemes would be taken in order of size, starting with the largest, and the expectation is that the largest DB schemes would be onboarded before the end of 2023. That last point also serves as a useful reminder that dashboards aren't just a DC thing. I've heard some confusion about this recently, so this seems like a good point to clarify that DB schemes will also be expected to provide information for use in dashboards. Waves two and three will be made up of smaller schemes, and while it seems these would have more time, the exact timescales are less clear, and there are some suggestions that onboarding of the smallest schemes, so that's those with less than 100 members, may be delayed until after 2025. This consultation runs until the 9th of July. The DWP has published its first post-implementation review of the requirement for DC schemes to publish an annual chair statement. Although it finds that most of the provisions meet the policy objectives, it acknowledges that using the same chair statement in relation to both scheme governance and member engagement doesn't really work. The consultation leading up to this review also revealed strong concerns that statements are currently too long, complex and costly to produce. The DWP are going to work with TPR to reconsider the intended audience and the content of the statement, although we don't have any timescales for this yet. On a completely different topic, but with a similar theme, the International Accounting Standards Board have proposed some changes to the pensions disclosure requirements under IFRS 13 and IAS 19. They've received feedback that the current financial statements contain too much irrelevant information, don't contain enough relevant information, and don't effectively communicate the information they do provide. The proposals would move away from the current checklist approach to an objectives-based approach, with the overall aim being to produce disclosures that contain only concise material information that would genuinely aid decisions. These proposals are open for comments until the 21st of October, so any changes probably won't come into force until at least 2023. Another quick update on pension scams. The DWP is now consulting on draft regulations that would allow trustees to block pension transfers where prescribed conditions aren't met. This fills in some of the detail that was missing from the Pension Schemes Act. Transfers to certain types of scheme representing a low risk would be able to proceed without further checks, and that includes public service schemes, authorised master trusts and personal pensions. For other transfers, trustees would be required to seek additional information to determine whether the case raises any red or amber flags. Red flags would give trustees the power to block the transfer, while amber flags would allow them to block the transfer until the member provides evidence that they've taken specific transfer scams guidance. Not long left to comment on this one as the consultation closes on the 9th of June. 
This month also saw the launch of the online safety bill. There was some concern following the Queen's speech that this didn't appear to include online fraud, but the government later confirmed that it would be included. And finally, Aon's annual Risk Settlement Conference is running on the morning of the 29th of June. The theme of this online event is identifying your journey to settlement, and topics will include insights from an independent trustee, the latest longevity trends, and life after a settlement transaction. Registration is open now, and I'll include a link in the show notes. And if you'd like more information on this, or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Back in August, we told you about the launch of the Make My Money Matter initiative, which was co-founded by Richard Curtis of Comic Relief and Love Actually fame, among many other things. They're back in the news this month. In partnership with Count Us In, they've launched a new green pensions charter that calls on employers to green their pension schemes to help tackle climate change. 50 companies have already signed up, and this is just one sign of the increasing focus on how pension schemes approach ESG issues. Today, I'm joined by Kate Charsley, who's a partner from our investment consulting team, and Gareth Doyle, who's an associate partner and investment consultant from our DC team. So where do we start with this? I suppose one of the things we've seen more noise about in the market recently is the need for trustees to ensure their ESG policies are aligned with those of their sponsoring employers. We, we have talked about this a bit on the podcast before in quite general terms, but I wanted to start just by asking both of you if you've got any examples of how this can actually work in practice. Um, Kate, shall we start with you? Yes, thanks, Ricky. I mean, this is increasingly coming up in conversations we have with clients. We've been discussing ESG policies with trustees. Many have considered their sponsoring employer as an input into that discussion. It's a really good topic to engage proactively with the employer on. Many employers are really keen and pleased to be part of the discussion, and it's helped forge stronger relationships with many trustees we've worked with. As we see corporate policies develop, we expect to see pension funds policies evolve as well and the move to, to net zero which is something we'll be talking about at a future podcast is, is an example of this and we're starting to see portfolios change so the example I wanted to just briefly refer to was a client whose decision to change their equity portfolio to one that is more focused on sustainability was partly driven by the overall sustainability of objectives of the company the company were very involved in that process and they've worked much more closely together as a result. I think Gareth has an example of how that worked the other way around. Yes. So I, I guess um, thinking of ESG, there's a, a spectrum of views of what's important um, to indi- individual scheme members. So prioritising where to focus their attention can be tricky for, for both trustees and sponsors. And typically sponsors have a set of beliefs and trustees take a view as to, to what extent these beliefs should or shouldn't uh, be reflected in the scheme's investments. But I recently have seen a situation where the sponsor didn't want to be seen to be focusing on the wrong area particularly where there are employees with um, with strong views. And in this particular case, a sponsor was in this difficult position. So following an engagement exercise with all scheme members, uh, the trustees were able to distill a set of clear beliefs, which, which was great, um, and then use these beliefs to consider how their investment should evolve. But the great aspect here was that the sponsor then adopted the, these beliefs. So the employees felt as though uh, they'd had a chance to influence not just um, the pensions, but also uh, how, how the company focus is going forward. And this is a great example in terms of uh, where the pension scheme and indeed the trustees uh, led the direction of travel for the company rather than the other way around. 
Thanks. So another thing to bear in mind here is the wider context. We're going through a period of rapid change and trustees are having to get to grips with a lot of new requirements on top of their usual day-to-day -day business of running their pension schemes. Kate, I know this increasing governance burden is something that's been on your mind recently. Yes, absolutely. It really does feel like there's been a ramp up in what's expected from trust trustees in recent years. And it doesn't look as if it's going to ease up at any point in the short term. So as well as the changes around ESG, which we've talked about, around integration and engagement and stewardships, trustees are now required to monitor their investment costs in detail. We've also seen TCFD disclosure requirements, currently for the larger schemes, but to be rolled out more widely in time. And a call for evidence on social factors, which Guy Opperman announced at our recent pensions conference. There are several other consultations out there at different stages, including the funding code with the journey to long-term funding targets and the single modular code, including own risk assessment. There's an awful lot there and there are good reasons for all of it, but it can feel a bit daunting to trustees. I think the thing to remember is that everyone recognises that it is a journey. It's important to show progress, but it's also reasonable to be proportionate. And Gareth, would you say the governance burden is better or worse for DC schemes? Uh, I'm probably a little biased given my uh, my DC angle. There's uh, definitely a lot of overlap between DB and DC when it comes to uh, governance. My guess is that governance is currently slightly more onerous for DC. But that probably makes sense for a couple of reasons. Um, first, that risk sits directly with members. And second, that the governance material is uh, already publicly available. So it needs to be transparent, but also easily understood by, by members, regardless of how complex uh, the scheme is. That being said, following the change to a singular code in the near future, I think DC and DB governance will be more aligned. But it looks to me as though the, the regulator perhaps tackled DC first when they considered standalone DC code, the chair statement with full cost transparency, and indeed more recently than last year with the implementation statement. Yeah, so I guess from the, the various issues you've just run through there, both of you, that the most immediate one for trustees to deal with is those implementation statements. We've got the October deadline looming pretty soon. So what do trustees need to get done in the next few months? From a DC perspective, I guess as a reminder, schemes that provide DC benefits, that, that's excluding ABCs, need to produce uh, this implementation statement. The purpose of this is to document how the policy set out in the SIP have been followed over the 12 months to the scheme year end. And that means that the information included and, and the workload is largely driven by what's contained in the SIP. Uh, the statement also describes any review of the SIP taken uh, during the year. And finally, the statement sets out the voting behaviour by or um, on behalf of the trustee during the year. And that includes the most significant votes cast, plus, of course, any services of any proxy voter. But when drafted, this statement needs to be included in the trustee report and accounts and then published on a publicly accessible website. But that's from a DC perspective. So for DB only schemes, it, the focus is entirely on engagement and stewardship. It's an engagement policy implementation statement, and it's just picking out the, the, the stewardship and engagement parts of the implementation statement that, that Gareth outlined just then. However, it is worth noting that where a scheme is both DB and DC, then you will need to do a full implementation statement. And that is articulating how all the policies in the SIP have been implemented relating both to DC and DB sections. So it's an assessment of a much broader range of activities. 
Thanks. So I guess in summary, there's a, a lot for trustees to do and more coming down the track, but that should give them some idea of what the top priorities are. And as Kate mentioned earlier on, net zero is something that we may be coming back to for a future podcast interview. But for now, thanks very much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Ricky. Right, that's everything for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Gareth Doyle and Kate Charsley. Actually, I'll let you into a little secret. I know it sounds like I'm just making all this up, but we do actually have a team that feeds ideas into the podcast each month. They've all been dragged in front of the mic at some point, but Kate was the last holdout, so it's great to get her on this month. And Kate, if you're listening back to this, I hope it wasn't too traumatic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com.